Welcome to Season 2 of History, Books, and Wine. We're your hosts, Lori Ann Bailey and Eliza Knight. We love sharing, so pour a glass of vino, and let's dive into the past. Today, we're excited to have a guest joining us, New York Times bestselling author Madeline Martin, which is especially awesome for us because Madeline was a part of the show in season one. It feels like we have the gang back together yes, again. Yes, I'm so exciting. <laughs> yep. On this episode, we're going to talk about the American librarians who traveled to Portugal during World War II to gather information and resistance fighters in France who used coded messages in clandestine papers to share intel. Welcome, Madeline. Welcome back, I should say. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we're so happy you're here. It's so wonderful to get to be doing this with you ladies again. It's <laughs> awesome. So you probably remember that before we start talking on the history that we love so much, we always talk about what we're drinking. So what are hey. you drinking today? Yeah. <laughs> so do I get to start? You do. Yes. Okay, so today I am drinking True Myth Wine, which is my favorite. No! no! Stop I keep doing this. I choose the same one. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, the funny thing is I went to go and visit Lori <laughs> when I was, I stayed with Lori for a couple of days while I was doing some research in D.C. actually for this book because I was going mm-hmm. to the Library of Congress and Eliza was meeting us up there. And so when I was at Lori's house, she had a bottle of True Myth, and it was <laughs> so good. And I've been looking for it in my in my Publix um, at the Publix grocery store near me, and I've never been able to find it until a couple mm-hmm. months ago. And even though it's way more expensive than my cheap self would usually spend on wine, I splurge a lot and buy True Myth. And so yes. that's what I have today that I'm drinking. It's totally that's worth hilarious. it. hilarious. And that, that's why I picked it out. Because the first time I had it was when you came to visit when you were researching this book. So I was super excited about Yay, it. And I love it. It took me a long time to figure out where I had purchased it. And I had to do searches. I found it at Total Wine and More near me. But then um, my husband and I one day were at Trader Joe's and I realized that's where I picked it up. They have it at Trader Joe's. So those are two options. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, they have have one in Publix that I kept getting by accident that was called Replica. This is ironic that the name of it was actually Replica. (laughs) It was Replica and it had like a big like butterfly on the front. And I was like, oh, that must be it. And I'd get it home and be like, no, I mean, it's okay, but it's not, it's not that one. This isn't it. Yeah, Yeah, it was, it was just a Replica. (laughs) Well, that's hilarious. Yeah, that is hilarious. <laughs> so, Eliza, what are you drinking? I'm definitely not drinking True Myth, which would be hilarious that because be. the last episode that Lori and I recorded, we were drinking the same yes. thing, too. Clearly, <laughs> we know um, what today. we like. <laughs> yes. Right? Exactly. Today, I chose a rosé, which is called Whispering Angel, that I just, I love the rosé, first of all, but I love the name of it, and since we were talking a little bit about spies and people saving people, it just seemed like a good wine to have for this episode. It's a fun name, too. I I love to put words out based off of names and labels. Same. (laughs) Totally a label girl. So cheers, ladies. Cheers. Cheers. 
So we are going to dive right into our questions for you, Madeline. All right. In your book, <laughs> The Librarian Spy, which is based on actual events, the United States sent a librarian to World War II, Lisbon, Portugal, to help maintain a record of news articles from around the world. Can you tell us a little more about this program and why America thought it was necessary? Yes. So in these neutral countries, you were having um, publications that were coming from all over the world. So you had like these clandestine newspapers that were coming in. You had Nazi-run newspapers that were being delivered there. And and really, the newsstands, like the kiosks, would sell all of these newspapers at once because it was neutral. You didn't have to favor the allies or you know the Axis or anything. Everybody just kind of sold information there. And, you know, it was really interesting because like you would think like, oh, well, what could they get from a newspaper? Because surely you're not going to be posting in the newspaper, hey, we're marching here next. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But it it was interesting because you would find certain little tidbits that were happening through history that you could use. Like, and ironically, I found this information while researching my next book, which I'm sure we'll get into at the end. But this particular piece of information was talking about how in the Warsaw Ghetto, they were collecting all of the furs from the Jews who were in the ghetto. And the reason that they were actually doing that is because they were getting ready to attack Russia. And so they were collecting all of those furs to help shield their soldiers from the cold. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't either. So, you know, that's an interesting thing, like how a little, a little bit of information that you learn from day-to-day life really is being factored into a much bigger picture as far as military strategy goes. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the, the tidbits they were looking for. Another thing they would find sometimes would be manuals on how things work. And Germans were very, very, very efficient and detailed with all the information that they would put together about how things worked. And so if you found, for example, the construction of a fan, it actually could possibly help to learn how maybe they built some part of an aircraft. And that could go oh, well. with, with all of it as well. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, I never think about the that. The details of it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that either. Yeah. No. Wow. I would have been like, oh, it's a fan. Who cares? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was that was all, like, really important. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, it definitely gives you a, a link into the inner mind of how yeah. they were thinking. And Absolutely. I can see how that could be critical. Yeah, for real. Hey, history lovers, Eliza here. We're interrupting today's happy hour to let you know that Lori and I host another fascinating podcast with our friend, Brenna Ash. Hey there, this is Brenna. Crime Feast is a true crime podcast hosted by three friends who are obsessed with all things crime. Each week, join Brenna, Eliza, and I as we serve up a platter of murders, mayhem, missing persons, tragedies, and more. Feast on notorious tales ripped from today's headlines and resurrected from the past. Until then, stay safe out there. We don't want you on the menu next. Now, back to the show. Cheers! So, Lisbon was full of immigrants trying to make their way to safe countries, along with spies from Germany, Britain, and the United States. What made Lisbon unique in that all these people were gathered in one location? So I think one of the big things with all the spies is the fact that it was neutral. So you really couldn't have like in the street fighting, for example, you wouldn't have like Germans that were coming in and like the SOE that were fighting against them. Everybody was really operating in a very covert way. In fact, one of the biggest things they would do while they were in Lisbon was spread disinformation. That was like the number one thing that everybody did. 
And mm-hmm. you know, you wouldn't spread it to a bunch of people. You would just find that one right person to spread it to. And somehow miraculously, like wildfire, it would catch all of Lisbon. And it was, it was really a very active area for spies. So for people who aren't familiar with it, Ian Fleming that wrote 007, his Casino Royale was actually based in Lisbon. So that will give you an idea of really what the spy scene looked like. And then of course, you know, you have our hapless librarian who has really received no training and is sort of thrown yeah. into the wolves. <laughs> but as far as a lot of the ref, all the refugees who were coming into Portugal, really they were coming because it was the last place that they could not even easily get to, but was able to, to eventually be gotten to where they were in a relatively safe area before being able to to transfer somewhere else in the world. And I say relatively safe because for them, they didn't know if tomorrow Hitler might attack Portugal and now they were right back in the same situation they were in before. Mm -hmm. But it was really really a very difficult time for them because this waiting was really just interminable. You didn't know how long you were gonna be there. You had to get all these various visas from different locations to see if you could even go where you were going to go. And if something happened and your visas expired before you could get a boat ticket, which was very difficult to get, you had to start the process all over again. You know, in the interim, people really, a lot of times, sometimes just escaped with the clothes on their back. So it was was definitely a very difficult situation. Mm -hmm. During the war, Germany invaded France and occupied the country. Under German rule, what was life like for everyday citizens of France? Oh, it was really, really tough. The overriding theme, really, that I read with all of the firsthand accounts was hunger. People were so incredibly hungry, but you also had, you know, in the winter time, they were so cold because they had limited electricity and they had the limited fuel. Now I know this is Lyon that I wrote about, but it's just a fascinating little note when I was reading, um, cause you read a lot about Paris as well, because mm-hmm, obviously mm-hmm. Paris being such an important part of France. And they actually all along the, by the subways, all of the benches that would usually be there, the slats of wood had been removed for people to burn. So, I mean, if you can imagine even just like walking down the street and seeing like this little, like the little metal, the metal parts and the little pieces. But yeah, so I mean, they were were always cold in the winter. They had no food. The, The structure of the ration cards was such that you got a certain amount for whatever age you were and whatever job you performed. So you only could actually get milk up to a certain age. I think it was like age eight or something along those lines. After Mm. that, adults couldn't even get milk. Actually, the food rationing was so bad that the Pope said that it was no longer a sin to participate in black market goods because otherwise nobody would die. Yeah, because there just really wasn't enough food. And then if you were working with the French resistance, it was that constant feeling of danger. So the accounts that I read were, you know, you couldn't even sleep a full night because any little bump, any little sound made you jump awake thinking that you were going to be arrested at that moment. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the particular characters that I wrote in the book, you know, she has like this attack of the nerves kind of where she's so anxious all the time and, and like her nerves are constantly fraying. And that really did happen with some of the resistance fighters because it really just was such a, like you were never able to fully relax. You were always looking behind your back, always expecting something to happen. Mm -hmm. 
Well, that technically was our next question. You know, during the war, Lyon, France uh, became the capital of the French resistance. And uh, we were just curious what the life was like for the men and women who chose to rebel against the German occupation in France. So yes, working with the French resistance was incredibly dangerous. First of all, because the Nazis were actively trying to track down everybody with the French resistance, including the Maquis, which were the men who really started off being too young to be sent as labor, like sent to labor camps earlier in the war. Um, they ended up, as they got older, joining the resistance and living on the outskirts of towns so that they wouldn't be recognized because if the Germans saw a healthy male um, walking on the street, they would pick them up and send them to Germany to do forced labor. And mm -hmm. so these, these young men were living on the outskirts of town and they were the ones who often received the SOE drops. They were the ones who were doing a lot of the guerrilla warfare. Really toward the end of the war, that's who the Nazis really started to try to find because they were so effective. But in the city, you had the resistance fighters and a lot of these were either older men who really couldn't be taken to the labor camps or people who had sustained injuries maybe in previous battles. And it was it was a lot of women, women who who used their guile and used their femininity to completely pull the wool over the Germans' eyes who, you know, these Nazis just saw pretty girls who loved to dress nicely mm -hmm. and do their hair and always had their shopping baskets, not really necessarily. <laughs> Maybe those shopping baskets had some explosives in it and everything else. <laughs> so especially what was a really dangerous section of it were the clandestine printing presses like Elaine worked in. And the reason mm -hmm. for that is the clandestine presses, when they were releasing these newspapers, they were not just used to um, negate all of this disinformation that, that the Nazis were spreading. I mean, because of course the Nazis were doing their own newspapers where they were trying to say they were winning the war even when they weren't. And the Allies were doing horrible even though they weren't. And really to try to, um, to crush the French spirit. So the clandestine presses, yes, they did make sure that they told people, hey, the Nazis are saying this, it's not true. But they also did go through and they didn't always share all the information because the most important thing for these presses was to encourage people to join the French resistance. So if they shared negative information about France, it might actually discourage people from joining the French resistance. So you have these newspapers that are trying to dispel this information, share a shielded amount of information to get people to join as well, but they would also share, you know, poems that were written, pictures that were taken, you know, that nobody wanted to have leaked out. And they also would have coded messages, which is sort of you know, what we tie in. And it would either be like a slight typo, or it could be something that was written into a picture or whatever the case may be, but they did have these coded messages that were incorporated very slyly into newspapers. It's so cool. Mm -hmm. It really is very interesting how they were able to do that. Hello, listeners. This is Lori, and I'm here to tell you that podcasting isn't hard when you have the right partners. We use Buzzsprout, and it's hands down the easiest and best way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Your show can be online and listed in all the major podcast directories within minutes of finishing your recording. You'll get a great looking podcast website, detailed analytics, and more. Following the link in our show notes, let's Buzzsprout know that we sent you. Get you a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan and help support our show. 
Join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout to get their message out to the world. The team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping you succeed. The first time I used Instacart was with my sister. We were baking cookies and I'd forgotten the butter. Instacart to the rescue. Now I even use it when we're on vacation so our staples are delivered right to our door. Save yourself that trip to the market. Instacart delivers groceries in as fast as one hour. They connect you with personal shoppers in your area to shop and deliver groceries from your favorite stores. Follow the link in our show notes and that lets Instacart know we sent you and help support our show. Plus, you'll get free delivery on your first order over $35. There's multiple stores available in most areas. Shop all your favorites on a single order. The products you love from local stores. Hand selected by shoppers based on your preferences. Delivery to your door in as fast as one hour. Instacart highlights deals to help you save money. Find everything you usually buy and get smart suggestions for new items. They pick the freshest produce and keep your eggs safe too. Let Instacart shop for you. Before we move into the fun facts, I did want to touch on something that you talked about our previous question that we had for you. And it was uh, something that I really loved in your book was that with the Lisbon side, we got to see sort of like an overabundance of food. And then in the Mm -hmm. French side, there's all this hunger. So I love the way you kind of juxtapose those two things against each other. But I think people would be interested to know too, like how did one country have so much and another country have so little? So the reason why Lisbon um, or really Portugal in general didn't have an issue with having to ration is because they didn't have soldiers who were going to war. So you don't have to worry about sending that food abroad. You just have it, have it like right there. And a Mm -hmm. lot of the food that they ate in Lisbon was a lot of seafood that came from the Tagus River as Mm. well. So you did have a lot that was right there. But as far as sugar, you know, even even rationing as far as like clothing and things like that, you really didn't have to worry about it because you didn't have anybody that was going off to war to have to supply all these soldiers that, I mean, because even in America, the reason why they were doing the rationing is because they knew that all the men were going off to war. You know, they needed Mm -hmm. the silk for parachutes. They needed Mm -hmm. all the Mm -hmm. tin and aluminum for weapons and armor and everything else, you didn't have to worry about that in Portugal. So that's really where a lot of that came from. And you also didn't have to worry about blacking out because you didn't have any air raids. So, you know, Mm, people mm -hmm. from, from big cities like London and Paris who came to Portugal at night, they were blown away at how brightly lit everything was because they were used to nighttime being completely blacked out. So if you can just imagine that sort of mentality, coming to Lisbon, seeing all of this food readily available, and then it becomes night and it's this like brilliant life that's alive and, and, you know, brilliantly lit and everything by comparison of what you'd come from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with us. So (laughs) one of our favorite parts of this show is when we get to ask people to share three fun facts that you discovered during your research. So we'd love for you to share those with us. So the first fun fact was, you know, and I, I, because I'm a girly girl, I really enjoyed (laughs) how they, in America, when they included a woman's military kit, they also included a com, like a a little bag with all their cosmetics in it that was like government issued cosmetics. 
Oh my and gosh. <laughs> that included a red lipstick that was called Montezuma Red. And it actually oh, matched that. the red piping on a woman's marine uniform. That's where the red color yeah. came from. Yeah. And um, of That's course, cool. you know, American women, like civilians, they were they really obviously wanted this red lipstick. So Elizabeth Arden delivered with Victory Red. So American women who were civilians could also rock that red lipstick. <laughs> I love that. That's great. Yeah, I thought that was really... And at one point you told me something, or I don't know if it's in your book about Hitler and the Victory Red. Yes. So so Hitler actually did not want women to wear any makeup at all. He thought that a woman should have just a bare face. And so all of these women wearing bright red lipstick, it was like a nice little (laughs) thumbing their nose at him. Yeah. I love that. A nice little screw you to Hitler. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) And then, you know... Another fun fact is that a lot of Elaine's side of the book actually came from a real woman who existed. Her name is Lucien Guzniak. And you can read more about Lucien Guzniak in the back of the book on the author's note. And you'll read about the other characters who are inspired by real people as well. But so Lucien Guzniak was such an incredible person. I read about her um, when I was doing research for another book that ended up not coming to fruition. But I, I loved her just, oh my gosh, she was such a brave and incredible person that I knew she had to go in a book at some point. And so when I, yeah. when I was writing about a clandestine, a woman who was collecting clandestine newspapers, I thought, oh, this is a perfect opportunity to put a character based off of Lucienne in this book. So mm-hmm. Lucienne actually really did, well, I guess I can't go into too much detail on this because I'll give away spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just say that a lot of the the incredible things that you read about in Elaine's story were real because I I was inspired by how Lucienne's life really was when she was working with the French resistance. And gosh, that's not as exciting because I can't go into all the details, but I will, <laughs> I, I will say that because um, I, I was lucky enough to get to go and visit Portugal and France and obviously DC (laughs) while I was doing research for this book. And while I was in France, I went to the French resistance museum and I spent so much time there that the security guard kind of started following me. Like it's like they slowly followed from a distance. And then I was there so long that they were like practically right next to me. Like we were like BFFs, like the last couple, (laughs) the last couple rooms of the exhibits. So while I was there, they had one room that was completely set up to look like an underground printing area. And they had the actual Minerva, the printing press that Lucien Guzniak used during World War II with the French resistance to make the combat newspaper. And that, like, I totally geeked out. I was so, I was like, oh my gosh, this was like the printing press that they actually (laughs) So I took like a million pictures. I did it without the flash because you couldn't use flash photography. Mm -hmm. So all of them, like none of them came out, but one. I have one perfect picture. But yeah, you still have one. (laughs) I have one. I was so glad I at least got one. So that's the second fact. And the third fact I thought was really interesting is how the how and like the ingenuity of how they were able to work around the things that they didn't have. So, for example, um, especially I feel like the French women really did such a good job with this because, you know, they weren't able to get their hair done. And so they would wear the turbans because they were fashionable and mm-hmm. they, mm-hmm. you know, for their shoes, you didn't get to have rubber, but they still wanted to have these pretty trendy shoes. So they really incorporated cork into a lot of their oh wow. they had these cute little heels they had a lot of wedge sandals in fact wedge sandals really did pretty much come from um i think at least mm-hmm. uh from that fashion in the 1940s because um you know you had it, it was a good alternative 
Yeah. And then you also had, like, even with cooking, for example, how, and I, and I do actually have a scene in the book with this, when you're cutting the bread and you have all the crumbs, rather than just throw them away, you know, you would scrape them up and you would keep all of those bread crumbs. And yeah. it's, it's really just incredible the way that they were able to navigate around a lot of the limitations that they had. Um, in fact, you know, even with bread in general, and I guess that's the thing is, is just that the rationing, it just really was so incredible. Like it's, it's, it's bizarre. Like when you look back, how detailed they were with everything. So they were not allowed to sell fresh bread. They had to sell it at least 24 hours old because then it would be a little bit harder. So when you went to cut the bread, you could get the exact um, weight of the bread that each person was allowed to oh, wow. But if it was fresh, wow. it was harder to cut. So you might not be right on that. So everybody who mm-hmm. was even getting bread, they were getting stale bread. And when you would go to the store, like to the bakery to buy bread, and they would say, oh, sorry, we're all out for the day. But they would have a whole wall of oh. baked bread in the back that they were not That's allowed horrible. to sell until it was oh. at least 24 hours old. I didn't know that. That's horrible. Yeah. And and you probably, I'm assuming that butter was even rationed. Oh, absolutely. So even if you wanted to put butter on your stale bread. Oh, it was hard to even find butter. Yeah. Fats were almost impossible mm-hmm. to find. Fats and meats were really almost impossible to find in France. Yikes. Yeah. Unless you were a Nazi, then you could have copious yeah. amounts. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing those with us. Those yeah. were really, really interesting. So I know we've been sort of chatting this whole time about your book, The Library and Spy, but can you tell our, our listeners about the book? <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, um, well, and I thought you guys also did a good job, like really talking about it. When you, In fact, when you guys were talking about it in the very beginning, I was like, oh, good. I'm not going to have to give a summary. <laughs> I up with that at the end. <laughs> small one. <laughs> we got you. <laughs> so basically, The Librarian Spy is about Ava Harper, who works for the Library of Congress in D.C., which obviously I had the wonderful chance to go to with these people. <laughs> mm-hmm. And she gets sent to Lisbon, Portugal to, you know, to gather intel by clandestine newspapers and um, manuals and pamphlets and all those other sort of things. And on the other side of the book, we have Elaine Rousseau, who works with the French Resistance, and she's working with the printing presses, which, as I said before, was an incredibly dangerous thing. And it was also a very rare thing for women to do. Generally, those were positions that men held, but obviously with not very many men available, you know, women were able to step up into that role. And so they basically interact through a clandestine message that Elaine sends and Ava ends up finding. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) And it's such an amazing book. Everybody needs to get it. Yes. Thank you. Go get it. (laughs) Yes. And speaking of reading, what are you currently reading? I am actually, I just finished reading Janie Chang's The Porcelain Moon which is, um, yes, it is very, very, it was so good. It is, it takes place in France and it's about two women who really are sort of like in in unfortunate circumstances and they have to do something very drastic to get out of those circumstances. Um, And one of the really fascinating aspects of history that's highlighted in this particular book were Chinese laborers who were sent um, from China to come to France to do labor for France while they were there. So it was, it was like, you know, just, it was really just like a lot of manual labor. And I don't want to go into too much detail about it because I don't Mm -hmm. want to like share any like spoilers about it, but it really was such a, an incredible book. And Janie is just such a phenomenal author. 
I highly recommend it. She is. Yeah. Yeah. I love her books. Sounds fascinating. Oh, and it is World War II. I realized I didn't specify the time period. So <laughs> it is World War II. Yeah. So where can our readers find you? I am on pretty much all of the social media platforms. If you go to TikTok, you'll find that I'm not very good at doing it, <laughs> but I am here. <laughs> uh, it's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. <laughs> That's why it's like my goal yeah. <laughs> right now it's my 2022 is very intimidated by it but 2023 we'll see i'm on instagram and twitter um, my handle there is at madeline m martin because somebody beat me to madeline martin my website is madelinemartin.com has all my stuff including readers guides and a form for people to fill out if they wanted to have me at a book club and on facebook i believe i'm madeline martin author so i am there for yes everything <laughs> you're everywhere you're everywhere well, this has been so amazing having the crew back together. I know. It's been so it's fun. so happy to have you. Yes. Thank, thank you. you so much for joining us. My pleasure. It's been so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you enjoyed today's episode with guest author Madeline Martin and our BFF. Yes. <laughs> next, <laughs> next week, tune in to hear about how people stayed warm in the olden days and didn't die. Coming up, we have guest author Brenna Ash joining us. Then we'll be back for Holocaust Remembrance Day as we learn about the Violins of Hope. For more information about today's episode, click on the show notes. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at HistoryBKSWine for additional historical tidbits and updates. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a review. Thank you for tuning in. Be sure to check out our episodes published weekly on Tuesdays. Until next time. Cheers. And happy reading. <laughs>